And we're off. <laughs> Threw me for a loop with that. Number four. Patrick counted us in. He was like, one, two, three. And then he stopped. And we could have just kept going with all the numbers. How are you? I'm good. Looks like I didn't set your microphone up very well. <laughs> I'm afraid it's going to fall off mid-podcast, like the computer last week. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. That was awesome. Um, hey, welcome back, everybody. This is Gregorian Rant coming at you live from Denver, Colorado. We should do a live show. I just don't know what that would mean. People could like... Interact with us. Mm-hmm. I think... I'm not very confident on my pod, my uh, microphone setup, but I think that'd be kind of fun. You know, I'd be curious to see what the turnout would be. We'd have like three people. Steph, Gianna. I think my mom would come. That's what I... <laughs> yeah. That'd be awesome. Um, yeah. So... You got good. shout outs? I do actually have a shout out. So I ended up... Um, we had talked about it before, but I did that episode with Chris Stefanik where we put on all sorts of makeup. But yes. um, while I was there, Matthew Kreckler, um, who I, like helps with the production, okay. just started a podcast on being a father, but girl dad, um, podcast title Girl Dad Nation. And I felt a little bit out of my skis just because you know, I've only been a dad for six months, Yeah, but it's kind of just like the overall experience and, and what it's like. And it was actually really fun. And he hit me with one of the most like deep questions I've never thought about yet yeah. to this day. But he was like, if he kind of ended the podcast this way towards the end, if you could leave uh, one message for Gianna, what would it be? And I was like, dang, that's heavy. And I ended up saying, which I was actually really pumped on, but it just, it hit me like a sandbag uh, to the face. But it was basically just like, no matter what happened or how I perform as a dad, I tried my best. Yeah. And, you know, especially after my mom died, I was like, so many things I could have been upset about. And I was like, I, I don't know her context necessarily. Like I was always so young and I can't go back now and ask her why did you do this? Like what in your childhood caused this? And I just have come to the spot of like, dude, she just was, you know, single mother, divorced, all the above running like chaos. So like, I don't know what life's going to bring my way as a father, right? but it was really rad and he did a really good job. So I would check that out, but that's, that's my shout out. Nice. Yeah. That's tough to think of. Like, what would you say to Gianna? The one message? Yeah. And it was actually, I also realized, um, like I bought this book um, that are kind of like all these stories that you can, it's like questions that prompt you and you like journal entry of like, what was mm -hmm. the hardest thing you've done up to this point or whatever that the kids could have later. But I also like, since I bought it, I've, I reading and writing aren't my thing. Yeah. <laughs> and so I did say, I was like, honestly, I should just use this podcast equipment and start leaving messages. Yeah. Um, because that all do, but actually sitting down and writing in the journal, I just, I would like to think I would, but I just know myself. I won't. Yeah. So there's that. I can make a verbal encyclical. That's a great band name right there. <laughs> the verbal encyclical. Verbal encyclical. Yeah. 
Yeah. So for the parents, something to think about. I that question really hit me. But again, Grow Dad Nation, he did a great job. Cool. Kudos. Yeah. Who do you got? Me? I think uh I want to shout out you. That's what I want to do. You're great. Thanks. You're great. Thanks. No, I want I would say my uh my shout out this week would go to John and Mark Kelly. Mm. They set me up. I did my first physical in um, Oh, you did do this. It did it, and it's my first physical in almost 20 years. Wow. Right, because I've been a priest 11, almost 11 years. It'll be 11 years in May. And then um, prior, to, prior to that, the, the only time I went for a physical was to enter seminary, and so that's seven years on top of that. So Is that mandatory? Eight, when you enter seminary. Um, wow. So it's been 18 years since I've had a physical, and... Uh, it was great. It was actually a great experience. Wow. And it yeah. was pretty in depth, right? Yeah. They, they pushed me to do a physical that's more than the kind of normal thing. They hooked me up to the treadmill thing. They did the stress test. Oh, did you wear a mask for that? Uh, yeah. They made me wear a mask. Yeah. I've but seen it wasn't, that. I've it, wasn't, it. it wasn't the oxygen mask. Oh. They made me wear like a COVID mask. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Got it. Yeah, okay. Not, yeah. Other kind, different kind of mask. Yeah. But they had me wear that and. They hooked up, you know, the wires to like the guy, like the male nurse had to like shave off some of my chest hair. Nice. And they hooked up the little wires to my chest and stuff. And they were taking my blood pressure and measuring my heart and all these different things. And That's awesome. Yeah. That was great. Stress ch- test. And they put me in something called a bod pod. Ah, the eggshell. Do you know about the bod oh, pod? Oh, I do. We uh, had to yeah. do it like once a month at CU. Did you really? Yep. Yeah. We got in that. It tells you how many pounds of fat you have on your body. Yep. Not going to tell you about my fat suit. <laughs> but it was a good physical. And the Kellys, they, my mother was very happy because uh, John Kelly told me, I called him after it and I was like, thank you guys. It was a great experience. And he's like, call your mother right now and tell her that you had a physical finally. Totally. And so I did. My mother was quite happy. So that's shout out to the Kellys. Love you guys. That is all time when we used to do the bod pod. So yeah, it's a body fat machine. Um, at the, yeah, I'm, I'm actually stoked. They still use that. There was two ways of doing it, but we didn't have, see, you didn't have the other one. You could do it in a pool and that would mm-hmm. like somehow figure out the ratio of body fat and lean, lean muscle. But you would go in the, did they make you wear like a swim cap? Yeah. You have to wear a swim cap. <laughs> yeah. So you get in and it kind of looks like, an eggshell that would like, you would think you would get shot into space with. Yeah, that's, that's a good description. Yeah. And every time you went in there that I went in there, I would always like, because it, it lasts like a minute or two, if I remember right. It was... That's about right. It's really short. It's short, but not when what I used to do is every time and every player would go in there, you'd flex as like hard as you could. So you're... I like somehow I think it would like manipulate the the body nice. fat test. Nice. And if you hold that for a minute or two, is like the world's longest thing of all time. I it definitely doesn't do anything, but it was like mentally you'd go in there. But I that is funny. So it went well. That's awesome. Yeah, it was good. Nice. Okay. I only have two hundred pounds of fat. So well, you know, <laughs> it's it's winter. It's winter. No, not I, I don't really have two hundred pounds of fat. Beach bod. Beach bod. Um, wow, that's awesome. I didn't realize so, you did that. Anyway, well, today we are going to talk a little bit about 
uh, Pope Benedict and his response to the abuse allegations. And uh, I should say that more precisely, not abuse allegations. They're allegations that in his time as the Archbishop of Munich, that he mishandled four abuse cases where priests were active in the uh, Archdiocese of Munich, and that him as Archbishop that he mishandled kind of the placement of those priests. And he responded to it. And he responded differently, and I think this is why it's interesting, is I felt like his response was so much different than the way other abuse kind of um, accusations of bishops who have placed priests in ministry, um, or just in general even, when there's something kind of out in the news where someone kind of gets in trouble. I think Pope Benedict just handled it way better than anybody. Interesting. Um, okay, taking a quick step back. Did, of the four priests, were they found guilty or just accusations right now? Or I think they were all guilty. Okay. But one of them was in, so of the four, Benedict is, is what he has said. So that it seems to me, and again, I don't know this, the, the, the necessary caveat whenever we talk about these delicate subjects is that, you know, it's a pray for the victims of, of abuse. Totally. And certainly we want to do that. And certainly those are very serious crimes and evil things. Um, that being said, so the, one of the four priests was not in ministry in his diocese, but he was allowed to live in a rectory while he went to therapy. Uh, Very, is that common? Um, or like possible? Like would I don't know. Archbishop Aquila, is, like, is that allowed in Denver kind of thing? I don't honestly know yeah. what all the rules are on that, but I think... Uh, I think it would probably depend now on what, what are they, why are they there? What are they in yeah, therapy the for? That kind of thing. Um, the other three, uh, so Pope Benedict and his kind of team are like, he didn't know anything about these other three priests. He didn't know they were abusive. And he was, uh, there's been a lot of what to do about, he was in a meeting that he didn't think he was in. And it was verified by this law firm that's going after him that he was in a meeting. And, but at the same time, even, um, what's kind of coming out, basically, I want to say, it looks like they don't have really any evidence that Pope Benedict mishandled things. That's what it looks like. It looks, and to me, and again, I might be wrong on this. To me, it just looks like they're after, they're just going after him. And yeah. Pope Benedict's, uh, secretary, who's an archbishop, Georg Gonswine, I'm probably saying that wrong. Harry would correct me. He's kind of come out and said that this is, they're just going after Pope Benedict. They hate him. They hate what he stands for. And they're just coming after him. Wow. Yeah. Now, I always think in any of these things, I love Pope Benedict. Full disclosure, you all know that. He yep. is one of my great heroes behind Patrick right now. There's a giant painting of his face. Oh, I thought you were going to say <laughs> he's one of your heroes behind Patrick. Behind Patrick. But then you let into literally there's a <laughs> painting behind me. Okay, that's yeah. fair. Yeah, so, so I don't know. I mean, none, none of us know, but that's not really what I want to talk about today. Just the cool thing is that, so Benedict apologized, but I think, you know, when you read a lot of these apologies, you know, I think you have to go case by case. But I think in our common culture, what I just want to say today, and not even related to the priest abuse scandals, that they certainly fit this, but even on a broader level, I feel like we just live in this age of posturing. 
Yeah. And it isn't really like people apologize, but they're they're not apologizing because they feel sorry oftentimes. It's just because we live in this mob world and they don't want to get canceled. Yeah. You have the PR team just get yeah. feeding you the absolute vaguest yet CYA of all time. Exactly. Exactly. And so Pope Benedict, he put everything instead of just um, begging, you know, for to not get canceled or hated or something. He did apologize for any of his faults, even though it appears again, like it doesn't look like there's a lot of evidence that he really did that he mishandled. And as Pope, this is really important. Pope Benedict is the one who handled uh, and made it very difficult on priests who had committed abuse. He's the one who really stepped up punishment on those priests, laicization, uh, them being stripped of all clerical rights um, and roles. And also he kind of pushed, you know, for them to be clearly be able to be investigated and handed over kind of to the secular authorities. So he, it's kind of funny they're going after him. He's the one who probably has done the most to bring the church to where it should be in my mind. There might be others, but when, so I want to dive into like how he actually handled the, the apology, but when they're accusing him of, um, cause I, I, so I have not heard of this until you and I kind of talked about this topic. Um, but when they're accusing him of not handling the allegations correctly or appropriately, what exactly does that mean? Like when I think of that, that basically means he just figured out a way to cover it up or was it, and, or kind of both, was it a situation where he didn't dive deep enough or like, what does that mean? Cause I feel like when you hear it now, uh, right. when I've heard that before, it's like, Oh, they straight up didn't want this happening in their archdiocese. And really not only just swept under the rug, but tried to cover it up or do something of that sort. Yeah. Basically what they're accusing him of is assigning priests who are known abusers. And oh, one of his okay. underlings from that time has, has come out previously. Cause this, this isn't the first time this surfaced, but years ago. So that they're talking, we're talking right now, by the way, about 1980. Okay. That's what we're talking about. Yeah. Pope Benedict is about to turn 95. And uh, it's hard, like, we're in 2022 now, right? So talking about something that happened 42 years ago, and they're, they're asking him to remember which meetings he was in 42 years ago. Totally. Which, you know, wow. Like, I, I can barely remember last week. <laughs> but... Uh, but the way they're alleging is that he knew these guys were bad guys and he let them be in ministry anyways. And what Pope Benedict has always said and continues to say is that he, he did not know about any of this. Um, Interesting. Yep. And previously, like 20 years ago or something when this, there were first allegations of this, one of the, the priests who worked in the diocese there came out publicly and said, I, the, the Cardinal Ratzinger, that's Pope Benedict's, his name is Joseph Ratzinger. He's like, Ratzinger didn't know about any of this. He's like, I handled all of this. This was, this was mine. 
Oh, he owned it. And yeah, somebody came out and owned it. So those are kind of some of the the baseline kind of... Why... Sorry, rookie question 101. Uh, Why is it common to go name change? So that's a great question. Uh, Biblically, uh, there's a lot of name changes in the Bible. Simon, good old Simon. Simon becomes Peter. Yep. And what it is is that your name in a Jewish context, your name is very much, and we still feel this way, your name is not just something that's kind of arbitrary, but to know someone's name is to know their identity. It's to truly know them. And so a change in a name is a profound change in a person. So for instance, uh, Jacob um, in the Old Testament in Genesis Jacob's name means supplanter or deceiver. And when you study Jacob's life, he, that's what he does. He supplants his brother Esau and he deceives his father, Isaac. Uh, and so like, there's that scene. It's always a funny scene because where is that? It's like in, I have to find it really quick. But in Genesis, Jacob goes and he wants his, the blessing and the inheritance that belong to Esau. And, um, what happens is, uh, Esau is the firstborn. So Esau is supposed to get the inheritance and the blessing. And, um, there it is. So it's in Genesis 25, um, around 27, actually. So this is hilarious. We're off topic, but here we go. Um, so basically what happens in Genesis 27. So Isaac's dying and he has to bless his firstborn son. And the firstborn son gets like the lion's share of the blessing. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is, uh, Esau's off hunting. And so, so Jake, I, Jacob's like, or sorry, um, Isaac's like, Hey, before I die, I love the food you make. He's like, so go hunt and bring me some food and then I'll bless you before I die. Now, the younger son, this is, this is biblical stuff, but it's a great story. So the younger sons, you've got Jacob, Jacob's mother, Rebecca. So Isaac and Rebecca are married. Rebecca loves the younger son more than the older son. And so she, they work together and she's like, really quick, your brother's off. He's going to go hunt and your father's going to bless him. Go get a couple of lambs. We're going to slaughter them and we'll try to mimic Esau's food that your father loves. But then here's the crazy part. And this is what's so funny. They take the, the sheepskin and like the fur and they attach it. They put it all over Jacob's body. <laughs> and this is what's so funny. So Isaac, even though he's, he can't see and he's dying, um, he says, so Isaac said to Jacob, come near. And they're deceiving Isaac. So I, um, so Jacob comes near, Jacob come near, or he says, he says, come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether you are really my son Esau or not. So Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. So he blessed him. That dude 
had to have some insanely hairy <laughs> hands. I was, that's really funny. I, inst- I was thinking that. I was like, man, I would hate if I had hairy hands. Yeah. But I didn't know if that was going to be the funny part. Uh, that is awesome. I mean, imagine, like, seriously. Sheep hands. Yeah. It's crazy. Yeah. So, oh, like, in verse hands. 15, Rebecca took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the kids she put upon the hands and upon the smooth part of his neck. And it's like, that's a hairy, I mean, Esau had to be like one of the all time hairiest dudes. But, yeah. But anyway, so what happens though? So Jacob's name means he, so he deceives his father and that's what his name means. And if you go through the story of Jacob and Esau, Jacob's always deceiving people. Yep. He deceives his uncle Laban. But what happens is that then he's going to wrestle in uh, Genesis 32 with God. And when he wrestles with God, he, God changes his name. And his name is changed from Jacob to, do you know? No. To Israel. Oh. And Israel means he who wrestles with God. Whoa, I didn't know that. Yep. And the, the crazy part, so Israel, right, is the person. Jacob, and sometimes in the Old Testament, you'll hear God addressing the nation of Israel also as Jacob. And you'll, you'll see that in the Old Testament. That's heavy. Yeah, but the cool thing is, so a change in the name is a change in the person. And Israel means he who wrestles with God. And if you, were, if you study the Old Testament, that is the story of the nation of Israel as well. So Israel, the person wrestles with God in Genesis 32, but Israel, the nation, that's their whole history. They're always wrestling with God. And I love that. Oh, that's crazy. What a poor scenario to be from birth named something that means <laughs> deceiving. Yeah, right. Right. Um, so, so that happens all over the Bible. So when a Pope becomes Pope, he's taking on a new role and a new identity. And so this is why when you're confirmed, for instance, people take on a saint name because there's something new that you've been marked as belonging to Christ. You belong to the family. When people enter religious life, oftentimes like religious communities, like I think of my, my friend Shannon Gunning yeah, is now Sister Maria Casey. And that's her religious name because there's something that a profound new identity when she made her vows to become a religious sister. She's with the Sisters of Life. Shout out, they're awesome. How come you didn't change your name? That's a good question. I don't know why why priests don't do that. I yeah, I don't have a good answer. Have you ever for thought that. about what you would change it to? Um, that's the next podcast. Okay. Um, yeah, that's that's always been a question for me. Um, okay, and then one last one because we've totally derailed. But so, I would be Father Patricio Stephanie. <laughs> Stefania. Yeah. Um. If, so every bishop that goes to Pope or Cardinal that goes to Pope changes their name. Yep. That's and I like think it's really specifically because Simon's name is okay. changed by Jesus yeah. to become the Pope, right? Wow. Peter. Um, and then also, as we're on Pope Benedict, I've always been a little confused and know that it kind of sounded like he got the short end of the stick of, getting punted out of Pope hood. 
No, that... he chose that. Oh, he did. Yeah, he stepped out. He was the first pope to resign in over four hundred years. But he health wise, why? He um, he felt that he was. He just simply said, the responsibilities and the needs of the church are so great, and they're not. They're beyond what I am able to give to her. And so for the good of the church, he stepped down. He said, John Paul II talked at the end of his life. There was, and it was revealed in some of his writings and in George Weigel's book, Witness to Hope, that Pope John Paul II greatly wrestled with stepping down. Really? Because mm-hmm. I've always kind of wondered that. Like, because how old was Benedict then when he stepped down? Oh, gosh. Um, 80 at this point? What was it? Well, he's, not, he's about to turn 95 now. Um, gosh, I forget when Pope Francis came in, but it's probably been 10 years. So okay. He's probably like 85. I mean, cause at some point that's kind of crazy to me of, you know, the Pope leading the church. Um, when you see, I feel like it's rare that someone's that with it at that age to really be, how many decisions are they actually making? Versus like their yeah. inner circle, all the above. Cause that's, I mean, that's a pretty old age to keep going until you die to be like, fully. it totally is. Yeah. I mean, most people just, I also think we, it's, it's, it's a legitimate question. And I Pope Benedict, like when he resigned, it was so beautiful. He's such a humble man. And honestly, I think it means what he says when he talks about this, if you want a great book on this, that addresses it from his perspective. Yeah. There's, um, he has a book called Last Will and Testament, and it's with Peter Seewald. And Peter Seewald is a German journalist who's done a number of books with Pope Benedict even before he was Pope. And they're just, they're interviews in paper form. Whoa. Okay. So, so he'll ask questions and Benedict responds. And he asks about this and you, you get the sense from Benedict. Benedict's a professor and he's an intellectual giant. And I feel this as a pastor, sometimes, not that I'm an intellectual giant, but I, you all know on the show, I love, I love the thought of, just like Patrick, I just want to escape and read all day. <laughs> and I want to pray and read and do that kind of thing. And being a boss and a like, CEO, basically, of like a $4 million operation or whatever it is we are, yeah, it's just not my strength. You know? Oh, being the role of CEO. Exactly. You're the in- just, intellect it, of the yeah, it's operation. Not, you know, and, and I'm trying to grow in that, and it's part of the responsibility of a pastor. And I don't think I'm like terrible, terrible at it, but it's, it's certainly not my like, oh, I just can't wait to get have organized. This, have and this run meeting meetings, today. Yeah. Run meetings yeah. And, and really like have like great team dynamics. I love great team dynamics, but it's not, I'm not the person who's great at kind of making that happen, I don't think. So, I, so Pope Benedict said, that's kind of why he resigned. There's been tons of speculation about why, that there's something really behind that. He's denied it. But there's, there's interesting stuff. It's, I don't like conspiracy theories, but right when he resigned, there was a big Vatican Bank scandal. And, and the other thing is that people are always saying in the, that in the Vatican, there's all these like, I don't even want to say it, but there, there's, there's speculation that there are like, there's like a, uh, kind of group of cardinals that are 
that are gay and that are very hard to deal with. And then Pope Benedict kind of said, I'm just not the one who can handle this and deal with it. Right. That's, that's, that's the speculation. Interesting. Do you think, um, well, I guess the two questions here. He's an intellectual giant. Is that why you really love him for his, is it? And when you say he's a professor, is that, does that mean that you appreciate his ability to take very complex topics yep. and kind of put them not necessarily in layman terms because your books are still ridiculous, but can break them down well? Absolutely. He's the best at that. Really? Okay. By far. And, and you're right because I, so I gave Megan your confrere, our confrere. Yep. I gave Megan a chapter out of one of his books because I wanted to give it to RCIA, but I was like, you know what? I should give this to someone just to kind of get, is this too hard? Is this? And she was like, yeah, it's way too hard. She's yeah. Like, People aren't going to understand this. Um, but if you have a little bit of theological background, like reading Benedict versus reading Balthazar, Benedict is a thousand times easier. Really? A thousand times. Wow. He, he's a better writer, I would probably say. And he's, he is, his gift is taking complex things and cutting to the heart of it and showing how beautiful and important they are. Um, but the reason I love Benedict, so yes, he was a professor. He's brilliant. But here's why I love him. It's not just because he says really smart things. He does. But it's because when you, when you read Pope Benedict, I love God more at the end of reading a chapter from him. And I love my faith more deeply. It's he, it, what he says in so many of his writings is so beautiful. It's so profound that you don't just walk away going like, Oh, I learned a really interesting dynamic between the way the church in the middle ages interacted with the state, which he does talk about things like that. That's cool. But what you do is you walk away from his writings. Uh, the chapter I gave Megan is about how the Eucharist and the church are essentially the same thing. And uh, you walk away from that and you're just like, I need to change the way I live. This is so beautiful. It's so compelling that I just want to give my life to this. Um, so we should talk so a little bit inspiring. about it. He's inspiring. Um, he's super inspiring. The, okay, my last side question here. Um, do you know, do we know the, re- the dynamic and relationship between Francis and Benedict? And where does no. Benedict live currently? He lives in a little tower. It's kind of funny. He lives in like, uh, he talks about it in this letter that he put out in his apology. Um, let me see if I can see. Was oh, that the apology there? Yeah. Okay. So he says, I would like to thank the little family in the Mater Ecclesia Monastery, whose communion of life in times of joy and sorrow has given me the interior serenity that supports me. So he lives in the Vatican Gardens. Okay. So behind St. Peter's Basilica, there's a large, you know, just gardens you think of like a palace or something in, in Europe. And there's just a little like monastery. It's like a, it looks like just like a tower there. And so when he retired, Benedict made the promise essentially that he would not be a public figure because he knew that that would cause controversy for his successor. Got it. And so he, he kind of made a promise that no matter what happened, that he would remain silent and he would not be a, a source of kind of like, 
pitting the two popes against each other. Yeah. And people love to do that because Francis is he, Francis at least appears very different from Benedict. Got it. <laughs> and the media loves to do that. The media loves to hype that. And all the liberals out there are like, oh my gosh, Pope Francis is going to change the church's teaching on women priests and abortion. And no, he's not. He, he's come out extremely strongly as pro-life and he condemns abortion left and right. But they don't like that. So they don't yeah. report that. Wow. Okay. So then when you, when it comes to his apology, is Wait, it- Wait, did you see the movie? I was, that's funny when you that's said what that. I was going to ask you, yeah. I just had deja vu of, I, we did watch that. And it was when I first started here um, that it left so many questions. Did you end up watching it? Yeah, I Have did. you watch it? Okay. I actually liked it. I, I mean, they had Anthony Hopkins play- Benedict and I forget the guy name of the guy that played Francis, but you could just tell the guy who made it was kind of a lib. And here's the problem with 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 so much of the talk around Pope Benedict is people. I, I'm a hundred percent convinced of this. People don't like Pope Benedict because he's quote unquote conservative, but they don't know what that means in Catholicism, and they haven't actually read his writings. Some of his writings push the limit on like progressive, like not not political abortion or gay marriage or any of that kind of stuff. But he has some radical proposals that are really progressive in certain areas. Um, but no one knows that because no one reads anymore and no one actually wants to do the hard work, especially in the media, yeah. of like actually knowing who Pope Benedict is. They just don't like him because they think he's conservative and he looks like the emperor from Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. And that's so in funny. that movie, that's why like the movie was better than I thought. I thought they were going to just tank, just dog on Pope Benedict. Yeah. And they really didn't. But I will say... They did portray him. Anthony Hopkins was Benedict and he was kind of the curmudgeon. Like, yeah. Like he was kind of negative and like just talked about sin all the time. And Francis was the like, Hey, I like soccer. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Let's go right. do something fun. Let's go <laughs> get cotton candy. And Ben was like, no, let's talk about mortal sin. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it's okay. Um, okay. So back to the apology with it. Um, what is it about the apology, especially compared to like the details of it compared to the standard cancel culture? Um, and or even now, I don't know if you saw like all the stuff that's been going on with Joe Rogan and um, some other people where it's been just attack after attack and, and trying to dig up things to prove somebody is way worse than they are or whatever. There's actually, I've kind of noticed a movement too of the apology slash also not address it. Like just go quiet, let the fire fizzle out and then kind of slowly come back. Yeah, um, They still address it. Rogan came out with an apology. And even in that sense, he tried to own more than he probably needed to. Um, but there's kind of a movement a little bit that I've seen of just going quiet on it and not really addressing it. But what was it that struck you as counter most of that? So the, the, the critical thing that Benedict did in his apology, and I just, it's just so him, is instead of like playing games around worldly things. And, and I feel like even Joe Rogan, I don't really know Joe Rogan. I get the sense I would probably like him, but I just don't know. Yeah. Um, Benedict put, instead of just kind of like, I got to win. I've got to defend myself, but I've got to avoid, you know, it's a calculation. Yeah. In the culture, it's a calculation of how do I avoid pissing people off more, but also I want to defend myself and whatever. Yeah. 
Benedict avoids all of that by one simple move. Is that he just places the whole thing in a different context that he's about to die. I was going to ask you, do you think he takes this position? Would he take the same position if he was 75 or 55? He might, because even though it's closer now, you know, than it would yeah. have been, for, it's closer every day for all of us. Benedict puts it in that context of I'm about to die and he casts everything in a theological lens. And so instead of say, instead of playing all the games, he, he talks about, um, he starts it and he talks about how he's struck as he, and when all this kind of was renewed of how every time we go to mass, before we begin, we begin with a penitential rite. So we begin with a prayer for the forgiveness of our sins. Yeah. And, and so right away, Benedict brings God into it. That actually this isn't just about the politicking and the games and reputations, but he, he casts this in terms of, of God. And it just changes his perspective on it. So uh, he says, I am increasingly struck by the fact that day after day, the church begins the celebration of Holy Mass in which the Lord gives us his word and his very self with a confession of our sins and a petition for forgiveness. We publicly implore the living God to forgive the sins we have committed through our fault, through our most grievous fault. It is clear to me that the words most grievous do not apply each day and and to every person in the same way, yet every day they do cause me to question if I today too should I speak of a most grievous and so Benedict, right? It's not about now. It's not about like his reputation, but it's but it he's he's even in this moment bringing the church to say, what ultimately matters is you're going to die. And do I need to to turn to God, and confess my most grievous fault? Kind of like, I think I said this the other day, but I've been thinking of it because I do I find it so insane, but in the words of the famous philosopher Tupac, only God can judge me now. Yes. And as goofy as that is, it, it kind of goes back to that. But I think when I hear that, and again, I haven't read that, um, the apology is, does he actually deny anything or can that also be interpreted? Because when I do hear that, I'm like, oh, he's kind. is that kind of avoiding slash admitting he um, may or may not have messed up but I, instead, I'm, we kind of preach this thing of forgiveness and knowing that we all are born into a fallen world, therefore, we're not practicing what we preach, but at the same time, may or may not be admitting that he did the actual... No, he's very adamant that, he, that these are false accusations. Okay. And he even says in there, he talks about how... Um, he kind of says all the things we've said. He says, um, he says, I've had great responsibilities in the Catholic church. All the greater is my pain for the abuses and errors that occurred in those different places during the time of my mandate. Got it. Each individual case of sexual abuse is appalling and irreparable. The victims of sexual abuse have my deepest sympathy and I feel great sorrow for each individual case. Um, but also in this letter, he talks about how even the report against him 
produces, they admit that they have no evidence that he's actually done these things. Good leg to stand um, on. But the cool thing, so the last paragraph here, I'm not going to read the whole thing. The last paragraph he says, I thought this just struck me so much. He says, um, so, and real quick, so with the, the apology, I think what Pope Benedict is saying is, I'm not guilty of these positive sins. I've not, I didn't intentionally like cover any cover anything or put priests that would endanger other people in parishes. But he compares it to when Jesus is in Gethsemane and the apostles fall asleep. Yeah. And he says, Jesus sees the terrible sufferings he'll have to undergo for the redemption of the world. And meanwhile, the apostles are asleep. And he says, unfortunately, that's also true today. That many of us who have great responsibility, maybe we were kind of asleep. Um, was he being criticized? So as you were kind of, I guess I've assumed that most of these people that have come out against him were outside the church. But is he also feeling the, the heat of people being critical that are Catholics or within the church as well? I don't think so. I, I, I think um, he's gotten that his whole life. Mm. So his, his whole life, he was labeled as this uh, Rottweiler, Got it. as like this hard conservative who came down harshly on people, which is just not true. Interesting. He, he talks about in his life, his, I think it was his doctorate. When he got his doctorate, there was a misreading of something he had said in his dissertation. And so it was rejected. Oh. And he had to start from scratch. And he talks about all through his life then that formed him and it was a gift from God because he became he became the defender like of church orthodoxy and church teaching. And that was his role at the Vatican for years under John Paul II. And so there were like there were heretic heretical priests out there who were publicly preaching blatantly false things. And he talks about how it made him he looked and he was famous for this with people who actually knew him that he would go out of his way to find the best possible interpretation. And he would be in dialogue with these theologians and he'd be like, maybe you meant it this way. Maybe you meant it like this. And he would look for ways to, to like understand them. And he was super compassionate that way. Oh, and that's awesome. Yeah. I mean, he was amazing, but so anyway, so he says this, he says, this is his last paragraph. He says, quite soon I shall find myself before the final judge of my life. Even though as I look back on my long life, I can have great reason for fear and trembling. I am nonetheless of good cheer. For I trust firmly that the Lord is not only the just judge, but also the friend and brother who himself has already suffered for my shortcomings. And is thus also my advocate, my paraclete. I just love it. He's like, yep, I have plenty of sins to, to answer for. <clears throat> but he says, you know, but I know that I know Jesus. I know yeah. him. And I know that his, <clears throat> his sufferings have already, he suffered for me. Freed me. Yeah. Uh, so it's really I, powerful stuff. It's, I do. Um, which would be the last, I guess, last one I would love to ask you about though is, I think, well, he kind of comes down and blasts the hypocrisy that he, when I heard this, the, of the, you know, you go to confession, you open up mass 
with the rights and and you address that stuff but then there is such a judgment when there is a public sin committed that I do love the fact that he come down hard reflecting on his life and and in this yeah. ability to that I feel like is rare that you kind of hear that I think we may all more or less feel it yeah. this is what I find interesting people I think would agree with that when they're watching from the outside in but when it lands super close to you or you are affected by that public sin, yep. you're dead to me yep. type scenario. Yep. And so when is it, and I, and I, you know, I've been guilty of it for sure. Yep. But how do you, it seems like that it is so hard to live that forgive, but don't forget or the forgiveness aspect of, yeah. But, and then at the same time, if you are the one accused of it, do you spend a lot of time being like, look, I can't control how you're going to perceive this. And instead, I really only have to answer to God. Like, that's on you to, to handle it. Yeah, right. I mean, ultimately, this is, I, and I wanted to get to this today. This is the right question. <clears throat> ultimately, right? Like, everyone, it, it seems like no matter what happens, people are always like, oh, I'm innocent. Right. And of course, like, a lot of those people are not innocent. Uh, so it's hard, it's hard from the outside and I think to, to kind of look at that and be like, who's really innocent and who's not. The, the famous case of recent years, of course, is Cardinal Pell. Cardinal Pell was, do you remember this in Australia? Oh yeah. So he was, he was convicted. That's right. And thrown in prison for abuse of these, these kids and the the, I think it was the Supreme Court of Australia, finally came back and he'd been in prison for I don't know how long. And Pell always maintained his innocence. And he's known, he's known within Catholic circles for being like a very holy good man. Very much like Benedict. Yeah. They were friends. But Cardinal Pell, um, Cardinal Pell is, maintains his innocence. And the Supreme Court of Australia came back and said, uh, it's literally unthinkable that it would even be possible for him to be guilty of what he's been accused of. And it was, and what they, and they shamed the lower court and they said, there's obviously like a hatred and animus of the hit, Catholic church. Here. Hit job. It is. It, it totally yeah. was. And it was Cardinal Pell was like, he was the fall guy. They're like, we want to come after the church. And he was the fall guy. And literally that case was crazy because there was, there were two boys he was accused of molesting, one of whom had died. And before he died, told his mother that they made the whole thing up. The other one, it was, there was no other witnesses. It was just him. But the way that the, the accusation went, it was like Cardinal Pell would have had, he was like in a very, very public place. And the way the case went was he was like fully vested for mass and all of his vestments and went into the sacristy, which was always open. And then no one disputed that. And that he would have, that he, you know, did something really inappropriate to young altar servers in a public place. And there was tons of testimony that basically said, there's just no way that could happen. Yeah. But they convicted him anyways. And what it looks like the Australian uh, judicial system came in a great condemnation for this because Basically, they, they gave a verdict that's just impossible. And it, just, it was just like, you guys just hate Catholicism. 
right now. And so you, you're going to take him down and you don't care about the facts. Um, so David, do you think Card- Cardinal Pell walked away? Ah, this would be so tough of thank you. And I forgive you. He did. Oh. And he, and, and he was like, <laughs> and you know, most of us aren't this way, but, but in my opinion, and again, only, and this is why only God can know, but this is why if you live the right kind of life, Cardinal Pell said his time in prison was hard, but that it was almost like a retreat. And he just, he prayed and was at peace. And the, the peace that comes from a clean conscience. So even if the whole world hates you, but you know that you, you're, you're innocent, innocent. Yeah. That brings a peace that on the flip side, right? Today, we got all this, everybody did the court of public opinion. Everyone's out to condemn everybody else. But if you've done some really crappy things, um, you're never going to have that interior peace. Yeah. Right. It's like the, you know, the truth shall set shit. <laughs> the truth shall, shall set you free. Wow. That was tough for me to say. Yeah. And I almost cursed in that scenario. Um, I think you did. <laughs> I, I feel like I spelt it with an E. Um, but so, but I, yeah. So that still comes down to the individual and that's something they're going to have to wrestle with, with God of, yep. yeah, I should have just admitted it. And I, and I did mess up and therefore whatever is going on with them, but as the person that it's been affected, right, wrong, and different, they messed up getting to that place of still having that empathy for them and compassion and forgiving them because we've all messed up. And I feel like that's one of those things where it's like, gosh, if we could hear the public confessions of the people that are so critical. And again, this is me so critical of other people, but then you go in and it's kind of, there's two steps here. You go in and if somebody else heard your confession, yep. you could be in, you know, the same scenario that that other person publicly is now going through. But then also the question of like, if they don't see that in them in themselves, that comes down to like the ego and all that kind of stuff that is correct me if I'm wrong, but almost like a bigger sin of just that, not wanting to admit it, not wanting to self-reflect and see it. Is that right. fair? Yeah, totally. Yeah. And there's, and we all need to do that. You know, all of us need to, the, the danger always is it's so easy to see sins in other people and it's hard to see totally. it in yourself. Totally. Uh, and, you know, that's, that's part of my broken human nature but the church is where I love like, so the, what the culture, as I always say, the culture, put the church is the opposite of the culture where yep. the culture pushes us to sin, right? Like we live in a pornographic culture. Yep. We live in a, um, a culture that just hatred is just kind of everywhere. And we're encouraged to condemn people all the time. And then when people screw up, you're done. Boom. Right. Your, your life yeah. is over. Yep. The church is the opposite. The church is pushing people not to sin. And on the front end, she's harsh. She says, no, don't sleep with your girlfriend. No, don't uh, condemn others. No, don't, you know, do the, the church is very hard on the front end. The culture is hard on the back end. Yep. And so it's, and it's a reverse. So in the church, you know, we're like, don't do it. Don't do it. To protect you. It's- and, but then when you fall, there's mercy. That's deep. Yeah. Okay. And the culture is the exact opposite. Now I will say this. There's a great, I always forget the name of, um, her name's on the tip of my tongue. 
but I read a book on the crucifixion a year or two ago and it's an Anglican preacher. But anyway, she, she uses a great point of, and I think you were going there with this. Um, forgiveness though, can't be cheap. And sometimes Christians, we do this, we just cheapen forgiveness. Um, but she talks about apartheid in South Africa mm-hmm. and the, there's a truth and reconciliation commission that after apartheid had ended in South Africa that handled kind of all the cases against really awful stuff on both sides, like both sides of the, of the equation. And what they did is, so the, the oppressors asked for amnesty, like ceasefire. Let's just let bygones be guy bygones. Everybody just walks. And they said, no, they said, so basically they're asking for mercy. They're just saying, Hey, let's just forget about the past. Let's be merciful. Yep. And what the, it wasn't perfect, of course, but she makes a great point. And she says the, um, there was, they granted amnesty to the criminals who publicly came before them and confessed their atrocities. And, and this book does a great job of, of showing how as Christians, that's much closer to what we believe is that it's not just like, you know, if, if you know someone who's been abused or is, has had something terrible happen to you or someone you love, it seems something's wrong where it's like, all right, Hey, let's just let bygones be bygones. Yeah. I'm a Christian. We're all fallen. Yeah. Have a nice day. <laughs> Fill into it. There, there has to be justice is her yeah. point. And so in, in God, God is infinitely merciful, but he's also infinitely just. Yeah. And so there is, there's something in God that makes it so that forgiveness isn't cheap. So when you say that, and that, you know, I've thought about this too with, with the just portion and that concept of like, forgive, but don't forget from the Christian lens, are you supposed to forgive somebody or is it healthy or allowed to forgive, but also to an extent people have habits and therefore knowing that they've committed that committed a sin against you or whatever it is to then, is it still fair to have guards up? You forgive them for that one instance, but you have your guards up knowing you could very easily do this again. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think, and I think this is just obviously true. Forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. Go on. So, so I have relationships in my life. I'm sure you do too. Where and, and and I'm a human, and I I think forgiveness is something I struggle with. I know it is. In fact, and Mary Rogers always says this to me. I I I'm one of those people. I tend to hang on to things I don't want to, but it's just it has something to do with how I'm wired, and it's probably a sin of mine. But at the same time, so when someone really burns you, like I've I've had a couple people in my life that have really burned me. Yeah, and I don't. Sometimes I don't even know what forgiveness means. I've tried really hard to forgive them. I've just said it a billion times in my head. I've really worked to, to let go of it interiorly, emotionally, spiritually, these kinds of things. And that's really good. But I don't think that's the same thing as now we have the same relationship. Yeah. 
right? So like if like if you have like a a spouse who's abusive, or not even abusive, but just something's really bad and you get a divorce. Yep. Forgiveness, I don't think, means you have to remarry that person. Got it. But God does that. And I think this has a lot to do with like, so God is just, and but when God forgives us, he also is working to make things right, which this, we're all over the board today, but this is, um, this has a lot to do with why purgatory makes so much sense. Because purgatory isn't just like, okay, Jesus died for you. He rose from the dead. Man, we're all good. It, it is, there's a truth to that. But also God's like, hey, by the way, this was serious and it's not vindictive. It's not, I'm going to punish you. Go, you know, 40 lashes. What it is, is I'm going to heal you. Yeah. And the healing is going to be painful. So I'm thinking, and I probably should know this, but I, I guess as you said that I don't, obviously, when I think of Dante's purgatory and the image that you have of the mountain yep. and, you, and you're working through the gates of your sins and, and whatever it might be, yep. do you meet God at that first gate? Because so, once you're like in Dante, yeah. right? Like you're, once you're at purgatory, you're, you're in, right? It's just how big of a mountain and how long is it going to take you? Yeah. So I think this is a good place to end today because Pope Benedict talks about this. Yes. Not in terms of Dante. He does talk about Dante in plenty of places. But um, so in Dante's conception, you meet you, the first place you go. So there's at the bottom of the mountain, there's people who are waiting, who aren't even allowed to start climbing yet. And those are people who were the late repentant is what Dante says. And again, this is an allegory. This is not what we really believe as Catholics. But what he says is every punishment on Mount Purgatory is fitting. Yep. It's not arbitrary. It's fitting. And it's also healing. But so the people who can't start, they're not even allowed to start climbing yet, are the people who waited to the very end of their life to repent. <laughs> so they made God wait for them. Interesting. They refused to live for him. They refused to repent of their sins to the last minute. And so now they have to wait for God. To then even begin the journey. Isn't that crazy? Brutal. And then, so the first thing you encounter is Peter's gate. So Peter's there, and this is in Dante's. Okay, and Peter, you confess your sins. Um, you have to have contrition, you have to have sorrow for them. But then at Peter's gate, you get the seven P's on your forehead. And the P is for the Latin peccata, um, which is sin. So the seven deadly sins are inscribed on your forehead because you have them. And then on each level of Mount Purgatory, one of the seven deadly sins is overcome in you, inside of you and they're erased from your head. So there's one of the P's. Yeah. And, and an angel is on each level and an angel pronounces a prayer of forgiveness of absolution and the P is erased. Oh, that's deep. So last thing though, so Pope Benedict says this. So here's what he says. So do you encounter God? Because it seems like at the end of your life, you encounter God. So shouldn't God be at the bottom of the mountain? Yeah. So again, Dante has an allegory and he's, he's trying to show that you have to be purified to enter God's presence, which is true. But what Benedict says, and this is one of his more radical proposals, but it's brilliant and it makes so much sense to me. Benedict says, hell purgatory in heaven. What if, and he says, he doesn't say he knows this, but he says, what if those are actually all the same thing? And what he says is this, is he says, what if when you die, you encounter God? 
but if you are someone who has destroyed your soul, when you encounter pure goodness and pure light and pure love, you experience that reality as hell. Oh. If you are someone who's a mixed bag, like most of us probably, you experience that fire of God as purifying. And if you've been purified and if you have become holy, you experience God's presence as perfect, infinite bliss. Oh. Isn't that powerful? That's deep. Yeah. So Benedict speculates about that in his eschatology book, that maybe when you die, all of us are just thrust into God's presence. But how we lived our life determines how we experience that presence. Oh, I love that. Isn't that powerful? <laughs> Dude, that's heavy. Yeah. I'm oh. Guessing, I'm guessing we're over time. We are right in an hour. Oh, good. Yeah. Yeah. Patrick hid the clock for me this time. I know. So I, I was I afraid tell. to move the computer. Yeah. Um, I've been watching. Wow. Okay. That's heavy stuff. I do really love the way he approached it. Pope Benedict of, you know, what if we all lived our, I guess the one takeaway I have is like, what if we all lived that? Like he just based on odds is approaching the end of his time. But at the same time, we don't know when we're called. Yeah. And just cause you know, I'm 34 doesn't mean I'm going to go to 95. Yep. And so, man, that's, de- that's heavy stuff. Yeah. Well it's paid, it's well that played. question of, do you fear God or do you fear, or do you fear men? Right. Do you fear public opinion? And it's natural for all of us that we just, I get nervous about this. I'm like, when I give a bad homily, I'm like, oh my gosh, everybody's going to hate me. And I have a certain vanity in that. But what we should do is think about the things that ultimately matter. So. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. We pray for Pope Benedict. We pray for all those who, um, all those who have suffered under terrible things, especially under the abuse crisis in the church. We pray for their healing. Um, we pray for justice. Yeah. Right. Justice is good for the church. It's good for everyone. Um, but that's, uh, we pray ultimately for everyone to be redeemed. Heavy stuff. Um, I don't know what it was last week, but, we somehow, I woke up or went through the weekend and we had quite a few great emails of questions. So we will get to those, Casper. We saw it. Hmm. Um, and there was a few other ones that were um, really powerful questions. So email us your questions, rant at lordsdenver.org. And yeah, there was two, especially that I, I really want to get to. And it looks like together. we might be doing an article for the Denver Catholic coming up sometime soon. So That's look right. for us in that. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Help spread the word. We're on it. And help spread the gospel, most importantly. Spread the gospel of, of Jesus, the good news of our redemption. The good news. All right. All right, everybody. Peace. See ya.